Welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, we have Bharat Krishna joining us. Bharat is the Managing Director at City Program, a global leader in online education with a focus on research ethics and compliance at over 2,500 uh, institutions worldwide. He's also served as General Manager of Kaplan Test Prep International, so as you know, we have worked together in the past. Welcome to the show, Bharat. Thank you, Andy. It is such a pleasure to see you again uh, after a few years, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to be on your show. Yeah, th- thank you. It is wonderful to see you again. Uh, before we get started, we do this with all of our guests. Uh, please tell our listeners your story. Well, Andy, um, I think we met, what is it, about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe yeah. a little bit longer, uh, and I think we were doing the sort of digital transformation at, at Kaplan, uh, you know, at test prep. And I, I, if I remember correctly, you had just finished your sort of transformation in the sense that uh, the Kaplan professional division had sort of gone f- almost fully online or really adopted online in those uh, in those days. So, so, so really, I was reflecting when when I got this invite from you on, you know, the history and how much has changed in the last uh, 14, 15 years and uh, what, a, what a journey it's been. Uh, and I think Kaplan was a great place to interact with you. And thank you for the invite to the show. And I appreciate uh, the book. I, I read it uh, cover to cover eagerly uh, and uh, learned a lot from it. And actually, when I was reading it, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it as we as the show goes on. But, you know, I actually discovered that, you know, I've made some of those mistakes and and, and, and found my way around sort of the balancing act. And so I love the title of the book. Uh, and uh, I'm really, really happy to be here. Thanks. So to answer your question on my story, I'll try to keep it sort of brief. Um, you know, maybe nature, nurture type uh, uh, quick sort of intro. So, you know, my mom, uh, you know, my X chromosome from my mom, a very, very uh, business-like, uh, uh, scientific, analytical, left-brained, uh, super organized uh, leader, manager type. Uh, and my Y chromosome from my dad's side, creative, uh, uh, right-brained, emotional, um, a great writer, a very accomplished uh, artist in his own right. Um, and my mom was a very accomplished scientist. And so... For the first 10 or 12 years of my adult life, uh, I think I had an internal conflict on seriously which side was going to pull for me, <laughs> you know. So, so, so it was it was kind of real, real interesting roller coaster uh, in retrospect, uh, you know. So I did an undergraduate degree in economics. <clears throat> so I went more my sort of you know X chromosome side at the beginning as a sort of an economics major, and then I started a computer science degree, uh, and uh, I did not complete that. So I, I, I decided uh, as I was starting that computer science uh, sort of program that that was not for me. And so I ended up leaving India in the, in the early 90s, uh, early to mid 90s and coming to the U.S. for uh, grad school uh, to uh, media and a film school. So I, I sort of really swung from the X to the Y. Uh, and uh, I spent a couple of years doing that. And I didn't finish that either, Andy. Oh. And so... And so uh, uh, I, but this was the early to mid 1990s, and I must have been sitting in a library somewhere, and I opened up Netscape Navigator for the first time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, so really, my story starts with the internet, with with sort of the uh, wide adoption of the internet. Uh, I was here in the U.S. during the dot com boom days, this very starting point of the dot com boom days, 
as this intersection between this science technical person and potentially creative person and uh, really struggling with figuring out what I wanted to be. And I ended up working in a lot of the dot-com early days uh, with online transformation of businesses and online business models. Um, I uh, found my way somehow to PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, their e-business consulting group. Uh, I'd done a couple of things and I found myself there. I got introduced to someone and I was was working for them. And uh, so I was doing online consulting, online business consulting, technology transformation consulting. And I I did uh, uh, retail, uh, theme parks, uh, very interesting sort of work uh, in my early days with with PwC. And then PwC was, uh, uh, e-business consulting was acquired by IBM. So I became part of IBM and worked with IBM for a few years. And at some point uh, decided that, you know, I wanted to go back and do an MBA. And so uh, third, third chance, actually fourth attempt at school kind of thing. Uh, (laughs) Thankfully, I finished my economics degree. And so, so I said, I want to go back and do my MBA. So I went back to MIT uh, and did my MBA at MIT uh, in my early 30s. So, so really lifelong learner, different sort of, you know, uh, um, path and, and trying to sort of, and a very motivated student going back uh, in, in, uh, when I was 30 to uh, do my MBA. I finished my MBA at MIT, uh, went to work at McKinsey, sort of finishing MBA school, uh, uh, executive uh, uh, communication skills, building strategy, working with C-suite, um, and that was very interesting for me, uh, worked with media, publishing, education companies. And then after a few years at McKinsey, I ended up at Kaplan because um, I really wanted to be um, really running a business and seeing all aspects of a business. Um, and so Kaplan was a great place uh, also because education was going more online a little later than other industries. And, and, and Kaplan was at the forefront of online learning in those days. It was, it was the place to be. And uh, Kaplan Test Prep uh, had a great reputation, Kaplan Professional, and various parts of Kaplan had such great pro- uh, promise and potential that I found myself at Kaplan first in a corporate strategy role and then followed by operating roles uh, as part of Kaplan Test Prep. And we suddenly interacted quite a bit in those days. And then about, f- so I, I spent almost a decade at Kaplan, um, transforming from strategy consulting to operating uh, business. And then about five years ago, I got this great opportunity to work for uh, the CITI program or CITI program, it stands for, it's actually actually an acronym, it stands for Collaborative Institutional Training Initiative. Uh, it was founded as part of the University of Miami. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it. I could talk forever about CITI program. It's a great, <laughs> it's a great place. And, uh, uh, and so I've been here for about five years and uh, it's, it's just been a great journey. And, and so again, not a straight path, uh, but uh, certainly a very interesting one. Yeah. So I, I love your story about the creative versus the, 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 the technical and isn't education a wonderful, I, I, I suffer from the same internal conflict of, I've got a very creative side and a very uh, technical side and education is just a wonderful place uh, to, to be when you've got both of those things going on at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it is a great industry and a great place, uh, as you say, for that, for that mix. Absolutely. Yeah. So Bharat, one event in your life that just really accelerated your career, what is that? And I try to try to say this to my kids and uh, you know other people I meet as well, because I am, I am someone who sort of finished one degree and then started to and did quite think that was right. And then I went back much later to a, a sort of a third program. I had lots of very interesting people and 
people and mentors who really helped me along my way. And I, I sort of don't want to miss sort of not mentioning some of those people, but uh, you know, there was uh, Kelly Ch- Chambers, who's like a very senior person at IBM now. She picked me up at PwC and really gave me a whole bunch of opportunities. And she was a great mentor and great, great leader. And she's grown very uh, successfully at IBM. And she's a big leader. There was Lisa Tondra, who's also a partner at IBM. She's retired now. She was just a fantastic manager. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, jo- John Polstein. I, ca- I can't not mention John Polstein. At, we we at, cannot at Kaplan. not mention I mean, John Polstein. I mean, John Polstein was just like, for me, it was like just a, a fantastic mentor. And I, of course, I met other mentors like yourself as part of my Kaplan experience that, you know, was great. Uh, McKinsey was a fantastic place. My engagement or interaction with people was more in shorter, shorter durations there, but I met so many uh, leaders there as well um, that it's kind of hard to even count or recollect. And, uh, you know, I can't, I obviously have to also mention uh, my current boss and CEO of uh, Biomedical Research Alliance of New York, Patty Mullen, who is just a spectacular leader and coach. And um, so CITI program rolls into her portfolio, which then ultimately rolls into four uh, New York-based institutions, uh, NYU, Mount Sinai, Montefiore, Einstein, and uh, North oh. Hofstra, which is uh, which are the institutions that ultimately own the CITI program. So these all these people and leaders have had an impact on me. Um, but if I had to pick one sort of major thing that changed my life trajectory, I think it was going back to school at MIT for my yeah. MBA. And you know, I think for, for uh, that also really taught me what's the difference between a motivated student and a semi-motivated student. Because I myself was, I think, semi-motivated uh, in my earlier educational journeys where I might have been checking some boxes uh, based on other people's expectations of what I might become or want, want to be. And I think when I found myself uh, at 30 going back to do my MBA, I wanted to be there. And I think that made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- our educational journeys, and uh, it doesn't have to be in a collegiate setting, but our educational de- uh, journeys, they, they do help define us. Uh, uh, before we uh, dive into research ethics and a bunch of balancing acts there, uh, let's dive into the city uh, program just a little bit more. Uh, give us a short primer on the city program and who the company serves. Sure. <clears throat> So City Program uh, is mainly an online education platform um, founded about 20 plus years ago at the University of Miami. It's originally started as a sort of a a group of institutions that got together to solve a common problem. Uh, They had to train their researchers on on a whole bunch of new content and courses um, that were sort of required to standardize their research, um, regulations, compliance, safety training, mostly around uh, human subjects research. And so the city program has grown a lot from there. Uh, we primarily cater to the research industry uh, around content of research, uh, con- how to conduct research ethically, um, compliance, safety, regulations. And the industries we serve are higher ed, hospitals, um, research labs, um, pharma, biotech, increasingly a lot of technology companies, and um also a whole smattering of other industries like nutrition science, um, you know, f- pharmacy, etc. So we are um, a, really a, a specialist, a sort of niche training provider at the intersection of, you know, this kind of content and these types of industries. And um, it's a, we, we serve, as you said, you know, thousands of institutions. We serve a vast array of all the, the major research institutions in the U.S. and beyond. And we've trained millions of learners 
we train almost 2 million learners a year uh, these days wow. on, on various topics and courses. And um, it is a great program, fantastic team, uh, very mission oriented, and um, uh, it's just a great place to work. Uh, two two million a year. That's uh, that's an impressive number. Uh, let let's focus on research ethics. Uh, we uh, earlier uh, la- last year in twenty twenty two, we 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 had a guest, a friend of mine named uh, Lee Rashan, and we talked about uh, political ethics. Uh, mm. So this this time we're gonna we're gonna focus on research ethics. What's the most important balancing act that you and your team have to play? as it relates to research ethics, compliance in the medical field? Um, uh, uh, it's a, a really good question. Um, just one small sort of modification there, the medical ethics. So we train social behavioral research ethics and also in care ethics. So we, we, we do span more than medical practice ethics, but sure. to, to go back to the sort of question, um, so research ethics um, really has a stem uh, or a sort of source, you know, pre-World War II, during World War II with all the Nazi experiment, especially medical ethics, the Nazi experimentation on prisoners of war um, and, and conducting medical experiments. That's kind of where, you know, this whole field really uh, started. And then uh, U.S. Public Health Service, there's a whole bunch of cases of where the, the Tuskegee syphilis study is a, is a classic example, which where there was a study that went on for 30 or 40 years where a minority population was you know, treated unethically in a, in a study around syphilis. So those were the genesis of where this whole um, area or field has sort of evolved. So now there's a lot more guardrails, and the U.S. is really a leader in the space on, on how to conduct ethical research when it involves human beings. And so uh, we train... Uh, and we train a lot more than just the human subjects research uh, audience today. But f- for for the most part, you know, we train uh, bodies, uh, ethics bodies like uh, the institutional review boards uh, who have to uh, study a protocol for a research if it involves human subjects and approves them. Animal studies go through their own review board. Uh, hospitals, hospitals have ethics committees. So if there's a very complex decision to make between life and death or procedure, uh, for a patient, you know, there are hospital ethics committees that make certain decisions. So, you know, thankfully, thankfully, we have very qualified people uh, and very concerned people that volunteer for these roles. Now, we train these ethics boards, but we also train the people conducting the research and we train everybody in the ecosystem around, um, you know, these research, these re- research and the related activities. But the... Um, the major decisions and balancing acts are really done by people in those shoes. So we are training those people. So I think for us, the balancing act is really, from a content standpoint, putting ourselves in the shoes of people who are making some pretty significant and difficult choices. And so how do you construct courses and content that uh, you can't cover all scenarios? You can't you can't really you know uh, communicate every single thing that might come their way. Uh, but you know we we're talking about discussing frameworks and case studies and and uh, how do we train uh, a, a, a whole body of uh, individuals and in related but not necessarily the same job role as well uh, how do you train all of them uh, so that the end product is this better research for everybody and for society so that's a big balancing act and i think the, there's one other sort of balancing act i think the the team plays which, which is critical is 
you know, taking a city program course is not the primary goal of the people conducting research. You know, right. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, and, and we try not to be a sheep dipping exercise or a check the box exercise. And it's very, we take our role sort of very seriously and we, we have to balance and understand that these are busy people. Some of them are medical doctors and they're conducting research and they're conducting life-saving research and they don't want to be spending hours taking city program training. So we really have to balance the, the efficiency and the efficacy yeah. of our training as well. And that's a big, that's a big balancing act that my team plays. Yeah. You, everybody wants the easy button for the training, right. but right. it has to be meaningful and, uh, and make an impact. While I was listening to you, uh, talk about, uh, the field of research ethics and some of the early drivers of research ethics, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history, uh, mm-hmm. popped into my mind. So if any of our listeners want to do a deep dive into some of those specific stories of some of the pretty, uh, very interesting, but horrific, uh, uh, early research, uh, stories, uh, maybe a season five or six of revisionist history. That, that's, uh, I think that's a, a, a place where you'll be able to get some of that. Um, Bharat, let's focus on you. Uh, what's the most important balancing act that you've played as it's contributed to your career success? Well, it's a it's a interesting question. Um, first of all, I, I want to say, I want to also note that I love revisionist history. It's one of my sort of favorite yeah. podcasts. It's it's just great. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is just so entertaining. Um, so balancing act, uh, you know, for me professionally, personally, I think has evolved certainly over over time. And I'm trying to sort of think of an ana- analogy here. Um, you know, I think early in my career, like a lot of people, you know, I, I sort of view my career as like a PL, right? Like how much money am I going to make? What's my sort of expense and where, what kind of quality of life do I want? And uh, is it sort of making me happy? And I'm sort of checking the boxes and, you know, moving on. I think thankfully I've sort of, you know, evolved really into thinking of my career and my choices as more of like really a balance sheet. And, you know, um, is it, is there sufficient work-life balance? Am I leaving impact? Am I having, um, you know, am I personally, do I feel like uh, I'm doing something with my skills and my professional life? Is my spouse having a good balance with her career? Are my kids' health and uh, welfare also a factor in that? And and so I think it's really, um, you know, some. I think some people really much earlier in their life are able to find that balance uh, and really move between like viewing their life as a PL versus a balance sheet. Not, not that the PL is not important. I think we still need to make sure that you have the right financial sort of uh, focus and goals um, and, you know, have responsible, you know, um, spending, et cetera. But I think life is really, uh, in my view, for me personally, has evolved into being more of a balance sheet. And I view it not in terms of, am I running the highest revenue company out there? But I really view it as, are my staff happy? Are they growing? Is my, am I uh, uh, training more people in the industry? Is my, are my courses and my feedback on my courses better? Um, you know, uh, are the stakeholders that, you know, own the entity happy with the reputation that the city program is growing with and all those things really start to become a factor. And I think really it's a balancing act of trying to juggle a lot of those things. Yeah. Well, I love your analogy of, uh, the balancing acts that you're playing as a balance sheet. So thank you for the plug for, uh, financial and business acumen. Right. <laughs> uh, of course. That, that, that is awesome. Uh, we're going to take a really short uh, commercial break and we'll be right back with Bharat Krishna. 
I'm Andy Tempty. My new book, The Balanced Business, is scheduled for release on October 3rd. This book blends everything I've learned over the last 35 years and details the management operating system I would deploy if I could go back and do it all over again. The Balanced Business is a practical, real-world guide to help businesses achieve long-term success that's built on a culture of trust balanced with accountability. The Balanced Business is available for pre-order on Amazon.com today. And we're back with Bharat Krishna talking about training in the field of research ethics. Uh, Bharat, I, I want to ask a uh, fairly obvious question. Uh, how is the deluge of medical myths or disinformation, uh, the acceleration of science denialism, uh, has that impacted uh, your business? I, I have to imagine that your programs are more valuable than ever. You know, how do we rebuild trust in medical science? Wow. I mean, we could, do, we could devote a, a whole series <laughs> of podcasts to this conversation, right? Um, I, I think that's one of probably the most um, uh, critical societal sort of challenges ahead for, uh, for, for, for really the world. Um, you know, I think there's two sides to this. One is science. First of all, science is a human process, right? So, uh, human beings conduct science. And there is, I mean, there's a reason programs like ours exist. There is fraud in science. There is misrepresentation. That is bad data. Um, I don't want to necessarily call out sort of individual cases, but it sort of hit the headlines recently. The president of Stanford just resigned a couple of days ago because three of his uh, co you know, co-authored papers were found to have uh, data that was uh, compromised. And mm wasn't corrected in time. Now, you didn't explicitly commit, was, wasn't explicitly charged with committing any sort of uh, fraud, et cetera. But, you know, he did for the reputation of his institution, he stepped down. And, and so these th kinds of things happen. And we just as public and even, even people in the, in closer to the industry hear less about these cases than about um, maybe some of the other um, loudly spoken uh, issues. I think the other thing, so science does have sort of issues in terms of output. I think the other thing is the pharma and, and medical device and industries have over time lost a little bit of the public trust. Uh, you know, I, I've just recently read a book, uh, An American Sickness uh, by Elizabeth Rosenthal. I mean, it's fascinating. One of the opening analogies in the book, uh, you know, Andy, was uh, something like, you know, imagine if you're take, you know, imagine Andy, you're taking a flight from La Crosse to New York and you don't know what the price of your flight is. You land in New York, and then you get a bill from the airline, and then later, a month later, you get a bill for the fuel surcharge, and then for the catering, and then the pilot sends you a bill three months later. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is our healthcare system, and yeah. I think um, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare, and research uh, science institutions have a, have lost a little bit of faith, uh, I think, of the public, uh, and uh, they do need to work to rebuild that. Uh, and on the flip side of that, I think is. It's very easy for uh, public to jump to conclusions that all of science is bad because of a few bad apples. Uh, you know, um, life expectancy in the 1900s was 47 in the U.S. And, you know, life expectancy now is almost 80. That's thanks to science and medicine uh, and to everybody who participates uh, in, in all those uh, sort of wonderful uh, understanding of how medicine works. 
Um, we send people, we send people to the moon and we've sent, we're sending rockets to Mars and we have a supercomputer in our pocket. I mean, all that is science. And I think it's, it's amazing that, you know, we take these uh, bad apple examples and, and, and as a society, we're able to disregard science sort of, you know, very quickly, but I wouldn't blame the people for it. I think um, there's a little bit of blame both sides, but I, I think the scientific community pharmaceuticals, healthcare, have a little bit of regaining trust to do, I think, with the public based on, you know, all the misunderstandings of the past. And I think um, what the public sometimes doesn't see is there are federal regulatory bodies, especially with federal research. There's the Office of Research Integrity uh, as part of the HHS, uh, Health and Human Services. There's the uh, FDA has a whole bunch of uh, policies and procedures. There are large um, repercussions. Uh, there are destroyed careers and reputations. There are large fines. A few years ago, I think the largest fine for research misconduct for an institution was handed out to Duke University for uh, almost $112 million for uh, you know falsified research data. And so there, there are checks and balances. And I think, um, you know, I, I, but I do think the public and the scientific and the research community have to come together and really work very hard and I think a lot of that is going to boil down to better communication. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, addressing this question. This is uh, one of the one of several reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is to uh, show the general public that there are uh, institutes like yours who are working all day, every day to ensure that uh, we've got the, that, that we, that ethics underlies uh, medical science. So, so thank, thank you uh, for the work that you and your team are doing. Um, now, this next question is one that I also frequently ask, uh, and it is the balancing act between technical skill and behavioral skill, uh, human skill, uh, the, the old uh, derogatory term is soft skills in the modern world of work. Uh, suppose, let's run a thought experiment. Suppose you have uh, somebody sitting right in front of you right now, one of your colleagues or institutions. How do you get that balancing act between technical and human skill right? Oh, these are great questions, Andy. Um, and they're not easy to answer. So, 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 you know, I think uh, I'm going to try and build on pre the previous conversation, which is around, you know, science and uh, mis medical and scientific miscom miscommunication, misinformation that's out there. Um, I think, you know, for, for institutions that are training their scientists, physicians, pharmacists, whatever they might be, and en en even engineers for that matter, um, I think training on communication skills and communicating with others and communicating with the public is a much more important uh, facet of their careers and lives than probably has ever been in the past, right? And so one example I can think of is, you know, I was, I was doing a, I did a case study. I remember a case study at uh, MIT Sloan um, where we studied the importance of communication skills as managers. And, and the case study was really the challenger uh, space shuttle disaster, which uh, I don't know if you remember, but um, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, people died and the space shuttle sort of took off and fell apart uh, in before it sort of really, really went 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 out of the atmosphere. But uh, I think the engineers actually flagged 
that the O-rings, which was a technical term, I don't remember the exact details, but you know they were faulty or they were, they were going to give way because the weather conditions weren't perfect. And we saw these case simulations of, um, of and this was a, you know, a filmed case with showing how these scenarios of how the engineers communicated, recreated scenes of how these engineers communicated with all the decision makers involved at NASA and how the decision was made to still go ahead with the launch. And, and the point of that whole exercise in case, I think, was to teach everybody watching, saying, oh, my God, this is so like if this could have been stopped only if folks listened and folks who were actually in possession of the knowledge knew how to communicate and influence better. That's all. That was that was the gap here. And I think that's the kind of uh, situational uh, education training um, and we really need to not not only make as part of MBA students and business students, but I think we need to have that sort of. Uh, I'm just giving that as an example from my experience uh, that opened my eyes. You know that that kind of situational training, learning. Uh, I think we need to give uh, to anybody in a technical field because uh, I think it's very important. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, what I heard, and I'm going to just pair it back: communication and active listening skills. You got to have both, you know, both sides. You can't just have a megaphone and be communicating out. The recipient right. has to have open ears and open mind uh, and be able to receive and process the information. Uh, so I, I, you know, when, when folks answer this question, uh, typically we're talking about emotional intelligence and, sure. uh, I really appreciated your answer, bringing us back to the fundamentals of communication and, and active listening. So kudos mm -hmm. to you, uh, Bharat, we're, we're, we're out of time, but one more question. If you had access to a time machine and could send a message to an earlier version of Bharat Krishna, what would that message be and what previous version of yourself would you choose to send it to? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, this sounds like my conversation with my, uh, sometimes with my daughter, she should, we watch these multiverse Marvel movies. Right. She's into that sort of phase. <laughs> and, you know, I can think of Back to the Future. You want to go back and sort of change something. Um, you know, what I'd say one thing I wouldn't want to change is, I think, any of the mistakes that I made. And I think, uh, thankfully, I didn't make any terrible, terrible mistakes, but I made several mistakes. And in fact, I'm, I made some of the mistakes as a business person that I read in your book. Uh, you know, these are common things you do as you grow up. Uh, and but I think people learn better from mistakes and you don't necessarily learn from success as much as you do from mistakes. And, and so I wouldn't want to go back and change any of those. Cause I think those are all valuable lessons that I sort of take and is part of what I am today. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, I think one thing to connect back to, uh, you know, X, Y chromosome and science and life sciences and medicine, in, in, you know, uh, in all the journey that uh, the winding journey that I sort of described at the beginning, you know, one of the areas that I never paid attention for the longest time was life sciences. I was never a biology person. Mm. And, uh, you know, I sort of reflect back and think of why, like, wh why was I not in, like I was into computer science or art and science and um, but never biology. And, you know, you know, I was I remember this time when I was in ninth grade or 10th grade, I was in a classroom and um, 
we were dissecting uh, things for the first time. The entire place smelled of chloroform and we were taking a cockroach apart. And a couple of days later, we we're taking a frog apart. And, uh, you know, a few couple of weeks later, my teacher was taking a chameleon apart and the lizard, the, you know, the, the, the chloroform was insufficient. And this creature started running around the lab half its guts out. Oh, and I, I just lost it. You know, <laughs> I just lost it. And I, I think subconsciously, I said, I will never be a life sciences biology person. And that was, that was, so I think if I go back in time, given that I'm enjoying myself so much for the last decade, uh, learning about life sciences, and I I married a microbiologist and a public health person, and she's a professor. And so, you know, certainly I've been reintroduced to uh, the area of life sciences and biology and, and medicine, a lot of which I have read with great intellectual curiosity on my own. Um, much later in life. But, you know, if I had to go back and say, hey, wait a minute, don't discount it, you know, it would probably be that moment and say, don't discount bad experiences and uh, from, you know, learning about an area or a subject. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great message. And uh, told with uh, great levity, uh, we can all, most of us can remember dissecting the frog for the first time in the, in the eighth grade right. and how that was more entertainment value than it was right. <laughs> any kind of uh, learning experience. Um, That's right. Barat, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you so much for being here and shining uh, a, a bright light on the field that uh, that you are a leader of uh, research ethics. Uh, really appreciate, again, the, wor- the work that you're doing there, and thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Andy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and great to see you again. Well, my name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act Podcast. You can find us on all the major podcast streaming services as well as YouTube. Please like, subscribe, rate, and share this public good uh, with all your friends and colleagues. Have a great day.